patience is such a tough thing to have in life, the world, in running, but it is such an important thing to have. I mean, it's just that stacking on stacking on stacking of mileage. And now in this venture, for me, it's words. And not to say that, like, I, I really love going back and looking at some of my early stories, and I think I did a good job at them. But now I'm excited about what's coming next and some of the ways I'm going to tell these stories, even the ones I don't know about yet. That's Liam Boylan Pet, and this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I sit down with athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that will educate you, inspire you, or impact you in some way. My guest this week is Liam Boylan Pett. Liam is the founder of Lope Magazine, an online publication that releases one long-form feature story each month from the track, road, or trail. Liam has a master's degree in journalism from Georgetown, and his work has appeared in The Bleacher Report, SB Nation, NBCOlympics.com, Runner's World, and other publications. Liam is also a hell of a runner. He ran collegiately at both Columbia and Georgetown, and then ran professionally for a few years, posting personal bests of 146.66 for 800 meters, 337.05 for 1500 meters, and 357.75 for the full mile. The man has wheels. In this conversation, we talked about when the idea for Lope Magazine first sparked and what's behind the unique name, the importance of patience in writing and running, his thoughts on the current state of the running media, what athletes can do better to tell their stories, reach more fans, and generate interest in the sport, why his relationship with running now is healthier than it was when he was competing at a high level, and a lot more. This was a great conversation. Liam is someone I've admired as both an athlete and a writer for a long time, and it was super fun to spend an hour talking to him for the podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed taking part in it. So let's dive right in with Liam Boylan Pet. All right, Liam Boylan Pet, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with a little introduction just to familiarize you a little bit with my listeners. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Liam Boylan-Pet. I used to be a semi-professional runner after a collegiate career at Columbia in Georgetown. And then I ran with the New Jersey New York Track Club and my hero, Frank Gagliano, And I ran the 2012 Olympic trials in the 800 and the 1500. And then by the time 2016 came around, I did not make the trials, even though I was still running. And that's kind of when I called it a career. And now I run a lot, I guess, to compared to the regular world, but a little compared to what I used to do. I'm running about 30 miles a week and jumping into some random road races here and there. And now I also stay involved in the sport through... I used to be a sports journalist with Runner's World, and then I started up my own thing, and that's Lope Magazine, um, and I tell one big feature story per month. I always like to tell something that kind of hasn't been told before or looking at something in a new light. So yeah, as of now, my role in, I guess, the quote, Runner's World is trying to find cool, interesting stories that nobody really knows about and shedding a light on those stories. 
Well, you do an amazing job with it. I've been a subscriber to Lope since the very beginning, and I love seeing an email come into my inbox every month with whatever you've cooked up. Because you uncover these stories that I, as a huge running nerd, mostly had no idea about. And for that reason alone, I'm intrigued by it. But you also do an incredible job telling the stories and complementing them with some great artwork or photography and just digging deep into, in a lot of cases, like just obscure stories that have been buried for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just kind of a lot of people have these hobbies of, you know, one of my hobbies is running, but another one is I'm a subscriber to this service called newspapers.com. And I literally just, you know, it's like in, in the dream world, you know, in the movies, I'm looking through microfiche film and like this really cool thing. But for me, I'm just like sitting at my computer, just like scrolling through old newspaper articles. And I type in words like runner escape. And I just try and find things that kind of pique my interest because then I hope that it piques somebody else's interest too. When did the idea for Lope first spark? Yeah, that's a, a good question. And it's kind of funny. I So I worked at Runner's World. That was my first like real person job. And I did it while I was running. But that was my first job where I was getting paid like pretty lowly pay, but I was getting paid still to go and write about high school running. And I covered youth running for running times, rest and power. Um, and so I was working for running times and then it turned into both running times and runner's world. And then I got a job offer with an ad agency and I took that job, but I stayed in touch with runner's world and Sarah Lords Butler and Aaron Strout were really great there for me. They were two of my mentors at running times and runner's world. And I still would reach out to them with story ideas or just pitches. And I would pitch to them a lot and work with them a lot. And then I kind of didn't stop working with them, but I started looking at the bigger publications, you know, and bigger, I don't mean, I mean, bigger in the non-running world. So I was trying to pitch to, you know, ESPN, to Bleacher Report, to SB Nation, and I would get some stuff picked up. You know, I got to I got to go meet Bob Beeman in his home in Las Vegas for That's ESPN's so cool. The Undefeated, which, yeah, I mean, it, it, he showed me his Olympic medal. Like, he was just an incredible guy. Him and his wife were living in Las Vegas and just enjoying life. And I got to go spend an afternoon with them, which was just a phenomenal experience. And so I would have an experience like that once out of every, like, I don't know, 15 pitches I wrote. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to pitch about Sidney McLaughlin, who I did get to write about for Bleacher Report. And just all sorts of people within the running community that I thought would be interesting for the outside world. And then I just kept getting turned down, even though I thought these things like even this year I pitched out of Embrasure to SB Nation and nobody was interested. So I just decided, you know what, rather than kind of like trying to take these stories that I think are incredible and these people that I think are incredible to send them to the outside world, why not like lean into the niche and what I did is I started to copy The Atavist, which is one of my favorite publications, mm-hmm. and do one big running story per month. And not to, like, I, I originally pitched it around to a few other companies as well, um, like Tracksmith. I thought they might be interested, and it just, it just didn't work out for us to work together. Uh, and then eventually I just said, you know what? Nobody was biting, so I'm just going to do this myself. And I fortunately have had a lot of help with 
editing via my wife, Ashley Higginson, who's also a runner and just other people who have helped out. And I try to scrape together a little bit of money to offer to people with, you know, illustrations and things like that. Although I've been starting to do a little of that on my own, but yeah, it's just turned into really kind of, I think these stories are really interesting and I, I hope that others do too. And I found that a lot of people do. And you know, you, you said yourself included, it's, it's interesting to take a different look at something like this. Mm-hmm. I would have never taken a look at something like that I'm writing and I'm finding out that, wow, if you really dig a little deeper than just on the surface level, these are some really cool, interesting things that are happening. And to tell those types of stories these days, you almost have to do it on your own because a lot of publications, especially the more traditional ones in running, aren't going to publish a long-form piece that maybe a small number of people are potentially going to be interested in. It's just too risky for them, right? So you almost have to go your own route if you're going to undertake a project like that. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's no fault of, of those big publications. I mean, it takes a lot of work to put these things together. And I'm, you know, I'm fortunate right now. I work at Michigan State University for my day job. So from eight to five, I'm, I'm doing that stuff. And then maybe on like a lunch break, I'm making a phone call for a story. And then I come home and make another phone call. And then I start writing. And it's just kind of like, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have that time. And I don't need the money. And Lope has not been some, you know, money-making venture. It's, I've, I've been able to not lose money on it, which I'm very proud of and happy about. But it's been much more just a, a passion project that I think is... In an ideal world, I will be doing just this in four years. You know, I'll have 10,000 subscribers and that'll be my job. But I, I understand that that's kind of not how it goes. <laughs> and it, it is a niche. And I think that the people who are into it are really into it. So the goal is just to build off of that base. I wanted to ask, is it almost better right now that it is a side project and you do have a day yeah. job to one, hold you down, but also just keep you distracted and take the pressure off of having the need for this to be bigger than it is right now? Uh, I mean, I'm so very, very fortunate. Like, you know, working at Michigan State University, working at a large university, first off, the benefits are amazing. Like, it's just it, a lot of weight is off my shoulder, like that this is a fun thing that I get to do. And right now, just with with coronavirus and everything being different, this is keeping me normal. It's like running for a lot of people, which I fortunately have too. But, you know, just chasing a story is really a nice distraction right now. And I have, I have more time to do it because now instead of, you know, the quick commute home and getting settled after work, now I just kind of switch from my work computer to my personal computer, mostly because I like my personal commuter, computer more. Um, and then I start doing lope stuff. So it's been really kind of a nice thing to have right now. And I, I'm just very fortunate. I know a lot of people are not as fortunate in you know the job world right now. So I very feel very I'm very happy that I'm in this spot. What's behind the name Lope? (laughs) So I started this whole thing and I had no idea. Like I knew what I wanted it to be. I knew I wanted one big feature story per month. I mean, in my dream world, I'd be telling two, but that's just too much bandwidth for me to handle. Um, But I was searching around for inspiration for a name. um, And it is kind of funny. I started, I guess, I, I don't even actually know the timeline, but a little bit after Sidious Mag and I now sound similar, like I have some foreign cool name like related to running. But mine, I was searching around for what what to call Lope. And 
looking for inspiration and I saw Greta Weitz, uh, Norwegian runner who won New York, I think eight or nine times. I was like, Oh, she's cool. Like she's a really interesting, amazing runner. Why, why not look into what she's doing? And she used to have this saying, hurry slowly. And I thought that was just kind of perfect for what I was trying to do. You know, you have these long stories that are slow to get going, but you want them to read like a race, you know, you want to be fast and it's kind of having patience while pushing and pushing that envelope. And I thought that it, it's a great mantra for running. And I thought it was also a great mantra for writing and journalism. And, but the thing is, I like looked up what hurry slowly was in Norwegian and it was, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but it was skin the long or something like that. And uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to name my magazine Skin the Longstrip Magazine. So I decided to just go with the uh, Norwegian word for run, which is lope. <laughs> I love it. It also reminds me of the Kenyan mantra, slowly by slowly, that we've mm-hmm. heard popularized in the past couple of years by Patrick Sang, who coaches Elliot Kipchoge. Yeah, I mean, it's just this, patience is such a tough thing to have in life, the world in running, but it is such an important thing to have. I mean, it's just that stacking on stacking on stacking of mileage. And now in this venture for me, it's words. And I'm not to say that, like, I, I really love going back and looking at some of my early stories. And I think I did a good job at them, but now I'm excited about what's coming next and some of the ways I'm going to tell these upcoming stories, even the ones I don't know about yet. Is patience something that comes naturally to you in general? Or is it something that you have to work at? Uh, I'd say a little bit of both. Um, a, a good example is right now I'm working on two stories. And one is probably an easier one that I could put out this month. Um, I'm going to do kind of a story about YouTube and running. And I've got some interesting people and characters that I'm developing. And then another is this story that about a... It, it sounds made up, so I'm just really kind of excited I found it, but it's about a Romanian runner who was kind of stuck behind the Iron Curtain and at one of the biggest track meets of the year in London with 25,000 people watching, he escaped from Romania and asked for asylum in Great Britain that day. And it's just kind of like this amazing, I'm telling it kind of like a whodunit, and it's just this really interesting story. And I've been, I've decided to, get rid of patience and just go for that one this month instead. <laughs> so it's just kind of, I'd say it comes naturally, but then sometimes I get a little impatient and decide to push through on something and really make it work instead. That, that's awesome. Like that's why <laughs> I love Lope Magazine because I would not have heard of that story otherwise and no other publication is going to put that out there. And I, and I know nothing about it other than what you just described, <laughs> but I'm, I'm already like, just, just publish it next month so I can read it if it's, <laughs> if it's ready because I'm, I'm intrigued already. So um, kudos to you for, for putting out these kind of stories and for anyone listening to this, like I'll, I'll give it my stamp of approval or whatever right now. If you're not already subscribed to Lope Magazine, check it out. You've got a number of stories that you have up right now that are free to view. Otherwise, it's what, I think 20 bucks a year for a subscription and you get one long form story a month? Yeah, so we're going less than two bucks a story. And yeah, right now I do, especially just as we were talking about with you know money being tight for a lot of people right now, 
not that twenty dollars is some huge, but sometimes it is huge. So mm-hmm. right now I've been putting a lot more up for free just because I know we're also stuck at home and, and you know, why not share these with if I can right now. So that's what I've been doing. But eventually we'll be much more back on the trying to at least make a little money on it, mostly because I think it's good for the world of journalism, you know, people investing in that. So that's the the thing that I'm pretty that that I want to stand for. That's why I have a subscription service for this site. Staying along this line, when in your life did you first realize that you enjoyed telling stories? It's a good question. And I think, uh, I don't want to say I backed into it. My, I majored in sociology and creative writing at Columbia. And I would have done creative writing if that was a major, but it wasn't offered while I was in school. They offered it my senior year, but I was obviously too far behind on credits to be able to take that. And I loved those courses. And this, that was fiction. I would go in there and just write. I, I wrote a lot of superhero stories, which now I'm not as into, but that's just what I was into then. Um, and I think a lot of people in those classes thought I was weird because they were writing these kind of dark, like, I don't know, memoir-esque pieces that just made me sad. So I was kind of a breath of fresh air to the teacher. One of the teachers actually told me, um, you know, Liam, like you you're missing some things structurally and things like that, but you can tell you're having fun while you're writing. And like that does come out on the page. And so that's something that I've always tried to do while getting better at some of the technical parts of writing. But then I kind of lucked into telling true stories by, I had an extra year of eligibility because I was injured my freshman year at Columbia. And I needed a grad program to be able to run at Georgetown. And they had a new journalism program that they were offering that I could get a master's degree in a little over a year. And I went with it. And it was just this great experience where I really just discovered that I love finding stories and telling stories. And one of the classes was all about giving voice to the voiceless. And that's like a, you know, a journalism thing. And that's one that really stuck with me. And because we did get to write feature stories in that class. And I thought it was just this incredible thing. I found this guy who was tying flies with old veterans and that was kind of a way that they dealt with ptsd and i just thought that was such a neat thing and it was giving voice to the voiceless nobody knew about that and while i think that that can have a much more like i guess big impact on the world i think that it's a lot of times giving voice to the voiceless is you know giving it to that poor community that's forgotten but in running it's it's a thing too and i've been trying to give voice to the voiceless in this, even if sometimes the voiceless is like these two women in the 1930s who are both really fast that nobody remembers. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you describe that because the pieces are starting to come together a little better for me, having read a lot of your work at this point. My next question for you is, have you always had a curiosity about people and wanting to know more about their stories? Yeah, definitely. It's this it's this like funny thing. Sometimes like I'm so interested to know, but then I also have this kind of precociousness. Like sometimes when I'm about to make a call, I feel like I'm the seventh grader trying to give the girl I have a crush on a call. Like I get too really nervous about making that call and I'm like, Oh, I I can't do this. And then, you know, I have to, because I had scheduled it. So I do, and it's all fine. And I just really am interested to hear someone's story, but it's this kind of funny thing. Like sometimes I get really nervous about telling people's stories and I, th- I think that helps because I think I'm careful with working with them to make sure that 
they're not saying something that they don't stand for. Um, and just kind of, I, I think it, it makes people comfortable that I am able to, I want to tell people's story in the right way. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm always going to be like nice. And if you told me some terrible thing, I'm going to not, not print it, but I'll be able to ask you about that and try and find out why. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just kind of like this, but yeah, finding people's stories is, uh, I think a lot of writers and journalists go through this. When I first started writing, I put myself into every single story. And now sometimes when I go back and look at like my old blogs, I just kind of cringe. But now I like really enjoy not being a part of that. And I, I put myself into it if I have something really important to add. And a lot of times in running, I kind of do because I, I get it. But I try to add myself in a way that's just a point of view. And I make clear that it's my point of view or just to kind of give myself a little more, um, I guess the word I'm looking for is authority within the story because yeah, I, I did live a few of these things. Like if I'm talking about the mile, I can, I can talk about that. Well, I appreciate all of that. And if it makes you feel any better, I feel exactly the same way when I'm about to get on. Um, well, in this case, you know, Skype for a podcast interview or call someone up to be a source for a story. I, I hadn't quite thought of it as calling up the girl that I have a crush on, but it's a similar feeling of yeah. low-level anxiety, um, definitely some like nervousness there. And then once you, once you get into it, you're like, okay, I just you know, I want to gain their trust and I just want to do a good job and make sure that I'm telling their story in an accurate way. Yeah, no, and, and listening to this stuff that you've done, you do that. Like, it's fun to hear these people's stories. It's like people, everybody's got a story and it's just kind of really fun to try and dig into it and find the, the, the best story they have. <laughs> this episode of the podcast is sponsored by my friends at Soar Running. Soar is a UK-based men's running apparel brand whose stuff I've been wearing and enjoying for the past couple years. They have the lightest race singlet I've ever worn and other great pieces like the hot weather t-shirt, all-weather jacket, elite speed shorts, and more. One of the things I love about this brand is that all they do is running. Soar is committed to creating apparel that matches your commitment, whether you're striving for a sub-four-minute mile or a sub-ten-minute mile. Right now, Soar is giving all listeners of the Morning Shakeout podcast, that's you, the chance to win a spring kit bundle comprised of your choice of any top, bottom, and accessory from Soar's range of products. All you have to do is head over to soarrunning.com slash themorningshakeout. That's S-O-A-R running.com slash themorningshakeout and enter the prize draw. That's it. The winner will be selected at random and entries close at midnight on Sunday, May 3rd. Also, Soar is offering free global shipping to Morning Shakeout listeners throughout the month of April. When you check out at SoarRunning.com, enter the code SHAKEOUT, that's one word, all caps, in the promotion box, and they won't charge you for shipping no matter where you live in the world. That is a great deal. Check them out at SoarRunning.com and follow them on Instagram at Soar underscore running. My thanks to Soar Running for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When you went to Georgetown for your grad year to get that master's degree in journalism, did you have a clear idea what you wanted to do with it afterward? I mean, I know you were also pursuing running at a pretty high level during that time. I'd love to get into that a little bit. 
Yeah, I I did not know what I wanted to do. I will admit that. Um, I think I really liked telling stories and I loved the journalism courses that I took at Georgetown. But yes, first off, running was my priority at that point. I was really into it and that's what I was focused on. So when I first started running, I, mean, I always say semi-professionally because I always had at least some type of part-time job while I was running. And I started working with gags up at NJNYTC and I had a job at an investment advisory firm, which I still to this day, like it was very fortunate. It was a Columbia alum who wanted to help out and I was able to do office work for them and stuff like that. So it was, I was so fortunate to have that, but I didn't know what I wanted to do career wise. I, I was reading more than I ever had in terms of long form journalism and finding stories that I liked. And I think that was kind of building a little bit of a base for the stories that I liked to tell, but I really didn't have a direction and it just kind of eventually I started pitching places just kind of for fun. And that is how I got in touch with Sarah Lurch Butler at running times. I pitched a story about um, Sam bear and his father who both broke four in the mile. And that's, that's actually on Lope. It's kind of like an archive piece that I have, but I was able to get in touch with her and she liked the story, but it was at that point, I had sent it to him and it got lost in the email system somehow. Um, and then she found it. I was like, sorry, like we're not going to go do this, but I'd love to chat with you. And then that's how I started writing about high school running for them and doing rankings and doing a big kind of blog series with workouts and all sorts of things with them. And then that turned into the full-time job. So I did not go in with a plan of working in sports journalism, but I eventually did have that plan and stuck with it and it, it did end up working out. So once you were in it, did you know that's what you wanted to do and were starting to look at avenues that you could follow? Yeah, I think so. And it, it's really, I still look back on working at Runner's World and Running Times and I loved it. Unfortunately, the pay was just not good. And it was, it was tough. I was running at the time we lived in New Jersey and were, I was commuting 45 minutes, which was, that, that was fine. And, but the pay was just pretty low. And that's, that was the world of, it still is the world of journalism. Mm -hmm. And so I was offered a job with some friends who were doing some ad agency work and a big pay raise. So it was kind of, I, I kind of had to take it and it, it put me out of the journalism world, but it also allowed me to still, like I, I left on good terms with Sarah and Aaron, especially. So it was nice to be able to continue to work with them, but it was in a different way. And while I liked working in the ad world, it, it really made me miss working at Runner's World and Running Times. So I think that that was what set me down the path of eventually starting Lope because I, I still needed to be in it. I felt like I had to be a part of it still. We're in an interesting place with it all right now in terms of running media. You've got Lope. I've got the Morning Shakeout. Allison Wade has the Fast Women newsletter. You mentioned Sidious Mag earlier, which was founded by Chris Chavez. There are others that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. And then you still got the Runner's World's Podium Runner, which used to be competitor where I worked. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on the state of the quote-unquote running media right now. Yeah, I think it's just such a... And I don't want this to sound bad about Runner's World, but I just see so many shoe things from them now. And, and, and that's how they're able to make some money. But it's just, and they still have these great, like time, around the time of the Olympic trials, I don't think you can really beat Runner's World. You have, well, I guess now, I got to not offend people, but with Aaron Strout at Women's Running, 
it's those They're two places it. are where I'm. Yeah. yeah. Well, those are the two places that I'm going to to read about like something actually in track. And I think that they're both just, they do an amazing job of like covering the sport. And I think unfortunately, if it's still the same as when I was at runner's world, we would do, I think some great work in running times too. We would do some great work about the elite side of the sport and the clicks just weren't there. And so it's this, this weird thing that we have people love running and they love runner's world and they love looking at it from like the, how can this help me be better point of view, which is great. Like anybody who's out there running and wants to learn how to be better, runner's world is such a great resource. Whereas then kind of the elite side of the sport, it just still is struggling to find that, that following. And now with, you know, we have so many different ways that you can find this information. And when you really think about it, as you said, you listed a bunch of people off, and there's, there's a lot of content out there and it's just not necessarily that easy to find. The easiest way to find it is to be subscribed to the morning shakeout and fast women, because then you actually get links to stuff. And it's just this really difficult, it's the landscape right now is it's vast and it's also not really centered. And I, and mm-hmm. I don't have a fix for that. <laughs> I don't have some fix for that. Cause I think runners world does a good job, but I just don't think they're getting as many clicks in women's running as well. I, and I can't speak to women's running. I think Aaron's doing a good job, but I don't know any numbers or anything like that. Yeah, they're doing a great job. And, and it's really a team. You've got women's running and podium runner. They're under the pocket media yeah, umbrella. Yeah, You've got yeah, Jonathan yeah. Beverly, who used to be at running times, now over yep. podium runner. Was great. Aaron Strout worked with him there. They have Sarah... Um, Sarah's still at Runner's World, but you know you still have all of these these people who have been doing it for a long time in the game and putting out quality work. But you're right; it is very like dispersed right now, and it can be hard to keep tabs on all of it. Which is part of what I try to do with the Morning Shakeout. Allison does an incredible job on the women's side with the Fast Women newsletter. I'd love to dig into something you just said a minute ago. Why do you think the sport? is struggling to find a following or has struggled to find a following in years past? I think one of the, the things that I, I think the sport is kind of lacking in is transparency. Um, and I think people are trying to get at that and fix that through this new social media world with Instagram and everything. And I guess, first off, like I, don't know the guys at 10 man elite, but they do a really good job of throwing it all out there. Like, I think that it's awesome that they are willing to open up their lives so much for content and the sport. And like, I, I, I think I would have not liked them as much back when I was running. Cause I'd like, Oh, these guys think are taking it so seriously, but that's what they're doing. That's what they're living. And they really are proud of it. And so I think it's just this awesome thing that they're doing that. And I think they are being transparent and I think that that helps a lot. And I think one of the, the other things is just, it's so hard. And this, this sticks back to the transparency. It's so hard to follow runners aside from on Instagram, but I never know when they're racing. I never know who's racing when. And it's just kind of like sometimes somebody posts on Instagram that they're running and then two days later they don't show up. And then I never know why. And it's just kind of like this, I want to know things like that's, that's, that's what sports is, you know, and not to like pick on, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to pick on Galen Rupp right now, but for two months, I didn't know who his coach was. Like, imagine not knowing who LeBron James coach was or like what team he was on. 
like it's just this I, I guess you don't want to put yourself out there because then when you do poorly it, it feels worse I think but I think that in these other sports and part of that's because basketball players have to play every three nights baseball plays every night football's every weekend like we see them a lot and we see them struggle too like we see Steph Curry have a bad night and then the next night he comes out and has a great night and it's just like this Instagram world, we don't see the struggle. And when we do, mm-hmm. it seems like it's, I guess, too late. I don't know. It, it's after everything's already happened. And it's it's tough. And I mean, back when I was an athlete, I probably wouldn't have wanted to do this. So it's easy for me to sit on my high horse right here and say that. But now as someone covering the sport, I, I want to be able to see these things. And I want to see people race every week. Like I, I, I jokingly complain to some of my friends about Bowerman Track Club because like, I want to watch Shelby Houlihan race. She's incredible, but I only get to see her at USA's and like, it's amazing to watch her at USA's and the world championships, but I want to see it more. And I know it's not easy to compete at that level every weekend, but I wish there was a way. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with everything that you just said there. And I'll add to it by saying, I think it's hard to do real journalism in running for a number of reasons. The non-endemic publications, the, Sports Illustrateds of the World, USA Today, um, New York Times, in a lot of cases, they're just not going to cover that much um, for a number of reasons. One, the fan base isn't there and, and people aren't super duper interested. Two, to your point, people aren't competing often enough uh, that they can thread this ongoing narrative together to keep people interested. And then inside the sport, especially with a lot of the bigger publications, they're afraid to piss off sponsors Mm -hmm. uh, and potential advertisers who support these athletes. And it makes it really hard to say anything critical or be objective. And I can say that because I experienced it when I worked at Competitor. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, now it's not as much of a problem for me, but I don't really think what I'm doing is necessarily journalism. Yes, I interview people and I put them out as a podcast, but I'm not trying to uncover some kind of truth most of the time. I'm just getting people's stories out there. But real journalism and that real storytelling where you can get into the nitty gritty of things, you can get people saying things on the record. It's hard to do in the sport. I think there's a a level of fear involved uh, amongst like athletes, teams, publications, uh, etc. just to to piss the wrong people off. Uh, And then also it's just you know, it's it's we haven't gotten that critical mass where people outside of our little circles care all that much. I mean, you you hit it perfectly on the head right there, and I think like what I'm doing is journalism, but I'm not covering the day to day of this sport. And I think part of the reason that I don't is because I have a lot of these people that are still running, and I'm I'm getting older now, but a lot of the people that are running, I know them, so it is kind of like this mm-hmm. small ethical dilemma of covering these people i don't think i can cover a lot of them in a way like where i'm fair to everyone like i'm a fan of and that it's it's really hard i think in all levels but i'm a fan of the sport like i'm a fan of paul Shalimo. i i shouldn't write about him because of that like i i like the guy so i'm gonna find the nice things to say about him and that doesn't mean i can't write about him but if i was to discover something i would need to tell it and it's like an interesting line there so i think you're right that it's a very insular world too. Mm-hmm. Like we are all, as you said, sponsors there, but it's also just friendships too. I mean, like, and yeah, not to pick on Sidious, Mag, but they're just friends with those guys and that's okay. Like it's a, it's a different type of, I guess, 
news outlet, but it's it's not it's not going to be. And Chris did an amazing job piggybacking off of the New York Times op-ed with the piece on Mary Kane. So like he does do it, but it's it's hard. It's a fine line. Yeah, and his day job is working at Sports Illustrated, which he yeah, exactly <laughs> needs to be able to dig in like that and mm-hmm. go a little bit deeper. You mentioned the Tin Man guys earlier, and I think that's a great example of a team that's doing an exemplary job of just sharing their journey and putting out content and just being really raw about it. NAS Elite's doing that. It's in their mission statement. Mm-hmm. We're seeing other groups starting to do more. Your old group, New Jersey, New York Track Club, just launched a YouTube channel not that long ago and it's starting to make some inroads. What more do you think athletes in the sport can do to help themselves and better connect with their fans and tell their stories to a wider audience? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think I'm going to have a similar answer. But one one is racing more, and I know that that's not easy. Like I, I especially when you do see like I, I forget who I was texting with. I think it was Kyle Merbert. I was like, Bowerman ruined U.S. track and field because now everyone thinks they need to go to the mountains, train, and then come and destroy everyone at USA. It's like they can do that because they're so good, but like a lot of other programs can't. And I will say like. I, I I think Alberto Salazar, like everything that I've read, everything has been made. The decisions have been very correct to ban him from the sport. But one thing I will say that I respect about Alberto is those guys used to race a lot. Like the indoor season was fun because they were there every single weekend. Like I became a fan of Centroids because he was racing all the time. And then he won Olympic gold, which is obviously just incredible. But I think that just racing a lot, opens up that transparency issue that I think is something holding the sport back. And if you race a lot, we're going to see you a lot. You're going to get interviewed more often on flow truck. So we're going to have more to learn about you. And I think that's what people want. Um, and in the running world, I think a lot of people like following each other on Instagram and, you know, you see now people that the everyday runners, some of those people have 20,000 followers on Instagram and it's just because they are, transparent and you know some people who knows maybe they're a little fake but like they do talk about their struggles and that's why they have twenty thousand followers because people look up to them and really respect seeing these stories and i think a lot of track athletes have done a good job of doing that more and more but i think just by racing a lot we can really just learn more that's the best way that we're going to learn more about these people Agree 100%. And the precedence is there. Let's look back to the 70s and 80s when the sport really was booming in this country. And guys like Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter were heroes. And then Joan Benoit Samuelson and even Patty Catalano Dillon. I mean, the the one thing that they were all doing, they weren't on social media because it didn't exist, but they were racing a lot. I mean, Bill Rogers raced Mm -hmm. like 50 times a year, which, I mean, maybe that's not advisable from a performance standpoint, but people knew who he was uh, because he was constantly showing up to races big and small. And I think the more athletes can do that, the more fans of the sport and followers can connect with them and the more they stay relevant, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy. And as I said earlier, like, yeah, you're going to have some bad races if you race 45 times a year. But I think that like the bad races, heck, I, I remember my bad races. No one else. I mean, maybe, heck, maybe a few people do, you know, but it's pretty rare that you were like, 
when you think about someone, you go, oh, I remember that one time they bombed. Like, no, you remember the times they ran great because like, that's what's memorable. The bombs happen. They're going to happen for everybody. If, if you don't, like, you probably are on drugs. So like, <laughs> you, it's just like you got to go for it. And I think that would be a big help. Just the more races, the better. And I think some people are trying to do that. And it's never easy. Like injuries happen, things like that. So it's not just a simple flip of the switch. Oh, you can go race all the time. It's kind of figuring out how to do that. And it's not not some easy task. So it's easy for me to say that right here. <laughs> yeah, but all those moments that you just described, they're part of the story. And when the athlete does have those moments of triumph, it makes them that much more special. And I think somehow that gets lost in all of this. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think yeah, you I can't remember any shots Jordan missed, even though as his famous quote is, you know, you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take, but like he definitely missed shots to win the game too, but you see the highlight reels of him winning every game. And it's just kind of like those opportunities, the more, the more times you give yourself a chance, the more you're going to do it. So I think it's just this really, let's get out and race more. <laughs> I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about you. What was your introduction to the sport of running? Yeah, my intro was, my dad was a big runner. He, um, Walt, my dad, he's a ponytail. Like he, he looks every part, the hippie from the 1960s and seventies. Um, and he, when I was a kid would go run every day at lunch, like kind of without fail. And he was running slow, but he would go run five K's on the weekends. So there's this great picture of him and I, when I'm, I think five running, uh, 5k in the winter in East Lansing, Michigan, um, I grew up in Bath, Michigan, a really small town, but we were in East Lansing at a race and him and I are running and there's these two guys, you know, like, you know, a 1988, you know, Chevy box car or something like that. And they're both looking out the window, like, Oh, who's that little kid flying? And it's this really cool, fun picture that I have. But if you actually ask my dad about that race, I ran for probably about three total minutes, the rest <laughs> of just walking and complaining about being tired. So like, but I, I was always around running and my mom was a runner as well. And then my brother got good at running in middle school. And my brother, Will, is three years older than I am. And I saw that he was good. So I was like, well, why the heck wouldn't I be too? It's, which is kind of a funny, I, I just heard that story. I wrote a story about the Klecker family who has mm -hmm. six kids who five of them turned out to be runners. And the oldest one ran and then all the younger ones thought, oh, I can do that too. And it is just, it, that's what happened for me. And I t ended up being good at it. And then I was able to kind of, learn, I guess, not from my brother's mistakes, but just from what he didn't know. So we were able to up my training versus what he did. And he went to Columbia as well. So I followed him there and just kind of, I followed him, but I was a little better. And like, that's not trying to be mean to him, but it was just, he was good at track and I thought I could be too. And so I tried to do what he did, but just a little more. And it, it just it kept on building and I was able to have a really fun, great career. So it's just this combination of being raised around running and then some sibling rivalry that fueled you to some pretty great things as an athlete. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the other, I, I do have to brag, my little sister, who's 12 years younger than me, she just graduated from Columbia. So all three of us <sighs> ran track at Columbia, which was just a really, at her graduation last year, it was just kind of a thing that you don't think about it while you're in it, but then I after looking at photos of her graduation, I go, wow, all three of us went there. That's a really kind of cool, fun thing. Three kids from Bath, Michigan 
ended up running track at Columbia. So it's just something I'm, I'm very proud of. <laughs> hey, one more quick break to let you know that this episode is also brought to you by The Feed. The Feed is a one-stop shop for athletes to fuel their training, stay healthy, and recover quicker. Their online store offers a selection of over 200 different sports nutrition products, supplements, and recovery devices. They have everything you need for hydration, fuel, recovery, and wellness. With brands like Morton, Goo, Honey Stinger, Human, Vital Proteins, Theragun, PowerDot, and many others, you can take your training to the next level. The Feed's wide selection of wellness products will help boost your immunity, keep you healthy, and improve your recovery time. They've even put together an Immunity Plus pack to help individuals boost their immunity during these uncertain times. Whether you are looking to stock up on healthy snacks or improve your training or recovery, visit thefeed.com slash morningshakeout to save 12% off your next order with The Feed. That's thefeed.com slash morningshakeout. My thanks to The Feed for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. You mentioned how you followed your brother there. Did she want to follow in both of your footsteps as well, or was it more of a coincidence that she ended up at Columbia as well? No, it's a really cool, cute story. Is that my brother left? She was, I think, four or five when he left to go to Columbia his freshman year. And like the first few nights, she slept outside his door with a Columbia shirt on. So it was kind of like if she didn't go to Columbia, it was going to be a disaster. So she fortunately was able to run run well and get in to Columbia and go graduate. And she's doing much better than all of us ever did in school. She's gonna she's working at a fellow she's working on a fellowship up at Yale with uh, children with autism, and she's a psych major. So she's blowing us out of the water, smarts wise. That's amazing. <laughs> Who coached you while you were at Columbia? So Willie Wood was my coach. And actually, he was the head coach of the program. And then Chris Miltenberg was the assistant coach. So Willie would write the workouts. And then Milt was my guy who, you know, if I had something, I would go to him. So he was my day-to-day coach. Not that Wood wasn't, but Milt was like the guy that I went to for a lot of things if I was having trouble with school or anything like that. That had to be one of his first collegiate coaching jobs. Milt now is coaching at the University of North Carolina. He was at Stanford before that, Georgetown for a little while. Columbia had to be one of his first stops, I would imagine. Yeah, it's Columbia. My freshman year, that was Milt's first stop. It was also Andy and Marisa Powell's first stop, who are now the Washington coaches. So they were both there for one year, but then Andy and Marisa went out to Oregon for their next job. And Milt stayed for three years. So we like our first year, I had three of the best, you know, now considered college coaches in the game. So it was really kind of a, a lucky experience. Did you end up following Milt to Georgetown or how did that all work itself out? That helped a lot. Him being there made a big difference. It made it a lot easier for me to go there. And he was not my coach there. Mm-hmm. Henner, Henner coached me. Pat Henner coached me there. But Milt was having him there. Once again, it was kind of the same thing. It was nice just to... At that point, we were just, I'd say, more friends than a coach-athlete relationship, but it was nice to have that. Like, it, We weren't like friends going and hanging out. We were friends that I would go talk to him just in his office, but it didn't feel like a coach relationship anymore. More of like a really, mentor than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was great to have him there. And honestly, that, that year I ran at Georgetown was a great year just because school was good. Milt was there, and I was running fast, and life was pretty easy that year. So things went well. Like I wasn't going in with many problems. I was going in just kind of 
shoot the shit and hang out. <laughs> How else was your experience at Georgetown different from your Ivy League experience at Columbia? The Georgetown experience, I went in and my plan was to be a runner. Um, I ended up liking school, so that was a huge bonus. But I would wake up every day at like 7.30 or 8, go for my morning run, then hang out, either go to a workout or go to a lift. And then I had class from 7 to 9, four nights a week. And it was awesome. Like I, I was a sweet schedule. A, very much a professional runner schedule. I guess you wouldn't have class, but the class was a nice distraction, honestly. And I would go, you know, eat at the dining hall with people on the team. It was awesome. And I ended up with some lifelong friends from there. I ended up with, you know, two alma maters and groups of people that I still t- stay in touch with and now have Zoom drinks with in our new world. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know when you left Georgetown that you wanted to continue with the sport of running and see what you could do professionally or semi-professionally for a few years? Yeah, I did. And part of that was like, I mean, the job, it was the, the last recession we had and the job aspects were pretty terrible. So it's just kind of made sense to run and have a part-time gig. Um, and I also didn't know what I wanted to do. So that was part of that too. But and then I met with Gag up at his home in Rye, New York, and him and Robbie. And I had a chat with Gag, and it was immediate. I said, "Yeah, I'm in. Let's let's do this for a few years." And I don't think I planned on necessarily going until 2016, but I was definitely going to go through 2012. And I was one of the fortunate athletes that got to ride two and a half hours every day with Gag in his in his BMW and his Beamer, and you know, kind of chat and get to know him him Delilah DiCrescenzo who's now my sister-in-law and I would uh get in the car and drive down to the Rutgers track run and then drive back and then go on with our lives for about two and a half years and it was a great two and a half years what was that experience just being in the car with gags for two and a half hours every day to and from (laughs) practice like for you at that point in your life I mean you just knew gags at first, before I met him, you knew him as Gag, like this scary guy who is this Italian machismo, like very much he's going to yell at you when you Old do poorly. And like, yeah, yeah. And then you get to know him and he's like, I, I always, a few people have been like, what's, you know, what do you, what do you take the most from working with coach Gags? And for me, it's just the, the man cares so much. Like he has more care to hand out than anyone in the world like everyone he meets he somehow cares about you just as much as the next person and it's just this great feeling he makes you feel very special that he is willing to put this much effort into you so you do it back for him and it's just like when you're living in it you notice it like i knew i was very fortunate to be spending that much time with you know this legend and then he becomes just like I got a father figure and he becomes just so important to you. And so I knew it was important, but now looking back on it, it's obviously even more so, wow, what a, an amazing opportunity I had. And, but for now it's just, yeah, that's, that's my guy. That's gag. You know, I still text him once every week or so. And my wife and him are very close as well. So we'll, we'll send a card to Robbie with a picture of our dog every once in a while. Cause that's who she likes to hear from. And it's just like this really great, fortunate thing. You know, you don't, you don't think that you're going to become that close with someone, but you do. And then you also find out that he's somehow that close with other people too. And it's just, 
it's not like a jealousy thing. It's just like, wow, how does he do that? It's just amazing. <laughs> it really is incredible. I'm smiling here on the other side of the mic. You were gracious enough to introduce me to Gag last mm-hmm. year over email, and then I was fortunate enough to sit down with him at his home and mm-hmm. meet Robbie to interview him for my podcast. I had to explain to him what a podcast was um, <laughs> before we sat down for the interview, but he was he was very gracious with his time, and I ended up spending half a day with him. And for anyone listening to this, mm-hmm. that's episode 64 of the Morning Shakeout podcast. I highly recommend going back and listening to it because it just emanates from him and you can hear it uh, in in that conversation. And that time I spent with him was really impactful on me personally. Uh, also as a coach, I learned a lot in the half day or so that I spent with him. And same thing now, we stay in touch regularly. I just talked to him <laughs> last week to see how he was doing, how he's feeling. And, and he'll do the same with me. He'll just call me out of the blue and he'll just ask <laughs> me how I'm doing, how my family's doing, how my athletes are doing, uh, if I need anything. I remember when I left that day, he's like, if you ever need anything, you call me, all right? And, and I mean, here's guys like 80, you know, <laughs> 82 years old, uh, you know, asking me if, you know, if I need anything and all I want to do is, is help him back. And to your point, he has that type of relationship. Like you just know he has that type of relationship with and pretty much anyone else that he's ever come across <laughs> that he's connected with. And that's amazing. Like just amazing. Uh, and it's, and it's, you know, as a, as a coach myself, it's I'm like, that's the kind of relationship I want to have with people, not just my athletes, but with my family and with the people who matter mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. I mean, if it, if, if I can care half as much as gag does about the people in my life, I feel like I'm doing a good job. And he's, he's definitely taught me that. And like running wise, you know, he, he knows how to coach what he does works. And it's, it's simple. Like we work out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, long run Saturday, and you just keep on doing that. And it's like simple and it works, but it's just, he's this, this guy that it's, it's funny. Like you, as you said, you know, you got put in touch with them and you hear about everyone talking about how great he is, but then he lives up to it. And a lot of times people don't live up to things and it's just kind of nice to know that that does exist. <laughs> While we're on the topic, what is one of your favorite gag stories or memories from your time that you spent with him? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm sure there are a ton. At, the, the Kyle Merber one is pretty funny even though I wasn't even there for it, but he like gags retelling the story is one of my favorite parts. And gags is a storyteller. And when we used to be in the car with him two hours every day, he would be like, uh, put this one, there's another chapter in my book. And I'm terrible at his, his, uh, his voice, <laughs> but, um, but his, him, Kyle Merber raced his first race with the team. And I, I don't know exactly why I don't race. I didn't race that day. I don't, I don't quite remember, but the next Monday or whatever, we're, driving in the car and he goes did you hear what i did to kyle and i'm like what, is, what did you do to kyle i knew kyle raced like crap i think he went out in like 257 for the 1200 of a mile and then ran 412 so closed in a 75 which is not not easy it, that had to hurt but gags is retelling this story he's like yeah i called him up i said kyle it's a good thing you got a degree from columbia i would appreciate it if you came by practice on monday and gave me your jersey and shook my hand but it was a nice career we'll see you later and as gags is telling this he's dying laughing like he's just full of life and i guess at that point he's 78 or something like that and he's just cackling to himself that he has told this 19 year old or 23 year old kid who thinks he's the best runner in the world that he's got to retire and he just loved it <laughs> the best part about that story is Merber still runs for him here in 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Merber's still running and ran, you know, 352 and 334 with him. So, so it worked. <laughs> 
Your wife, Ashley Higginson, is a badass. She was one of the best steeplechasers in the country around 2016. She qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon last fall and just ran in Atlanta in 2020. Did you guys meet during your time at New Jersey, New York track club? We did. So she joined in 2012. So I guess fall of 2011, that's when she had graduated from Princeton. And it's funny, we like knew of each other because she was a good freshman when I at Princeton, when I was a good senior at Columbia and she saw me win a Heps race and I like put my arms up and cause our coach had actually told us to celebrate that day. She always like makes me skip that part of the story, but <laughs> she saw me celebrating. I was like, who's that jackass? And then turns out we ended up meeting four years later at NJNY. And then, you know, we started dating, I guess, summer of 2012 and she, we were dating, but she was planning on going to Colorado to go to law school. And I was like, Oh, you know, this stinks. We just started liking each other. And then she took fourth at the Olympic trials that year in the steeplechase in 2012. And we ran around Europe together, got to travel with the rest of our team and have an awesome time. And then we were driving out to Colorado. I was like, you know what? I, I like this girl. I'll go help her move in. And that'll kind of be our goodbye. And we'll maybe stay in touch, but we'll just see how it works. And we drove through Michigan to run the Ryan Shea mile, which is in Northern Michigan. And that night, it was or like the night before the race, she was at some host family. I was staying with some of my actual family who have a cabin up near the race. And she saw, we watched the Olympic opening ceremonies and she saw them going on and emailed the Dean at Rutgers law school saying, you know, like, this is my story. I, I ran really great here last year. I was taking a gap year. I did get into your school, but I said, no, cause I was going to go out to Colorado. And he responded almost immediately. And she said, like, I would, if you would have me, I would like to start at Rutgers this fall, like, which was, this was August. So she was going to need to start in three or four weeks. And he responded almost immediately saying, let me see what I can do. And you're halfway um, to Colorado so, at this point. And we were halfway to Colorado. We ran the race. I think I took like second. She took second or something like that too. We hung, went, hung out at my house for my parents' house for a few days. Then she went to Indiana to see one of her best friends, a runner. And then the Dean of Rutgers said, yeah, you're, uh, you're in. So you can come to law school here starting in two to three weeks, whatever it was. So she turned the car around and then, uh, we lived together within like a year and a half and then got a dog like a year and a half later and then got engaged a year and a half later. And now we're married and living in Michigan. <laughs> How has your relationship with one another evolved as your respective relationships with competitive running have evolved over the past few years? Yeah, it's been great, honestly. Like, and we both hit the, we both retired from, I'd say, competitive running. And yes, she made the Olympic trials in the marathon this year, which is a really fun experience. Like, I ran the marathon that she qualified in with her, and it was just this great experience. But we both look at running in a much different way now. Um, she was ninth at the Olympic trials in 2016 in the steeplechase, so it didn't end quite the way she was hoping for or we were hoping for obviously making an olympic team is was the goal but she had an amazing career where she made the world championship team won a pan am gold and then we jumped into real life pretty head-on right after 2016 ended uh the, that year of running ended and she started up as a lawyer at a law firm in new jersey and i was working from home at the time so we were just there and things changed abruptly and I think it was really nice that we both had each other for that. Um, I think my relationship with running at first was much 
less kind than hers was. She wanted to keep doing it. I, whereas I was just kind of sick of it. And I think it's because I, I, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So I needed a little more of a break, but her still doing it made it. So I, I took a little bit of a break, but I still was, had a foot in. And I think that that made a big difference for me because if I would have like stopped, stopped running, I would have hated myself for it. So I'm really glad that she did that. And then we both had an hour ebbs and flows of, you know, really wanting to run. And some days because we don't want to run, we don't have to anymore, you know, as we're used to, but now I'd say most days we both just run because we feel much better. And it's our relationship with running is so much different than it used to be. Whereas, you know, you had to do it and you loved to compete, but now it's just like, we love to run. We love to get out there. And especially now, like that, this is really all we can do outside. It's just this really great thing that we have and to have it together has been amazing. (laughs) Would you say it's a healthier relationship with running that you both have, or is it just different than it was? I would say it's healthier. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think a lot of times when you're a, a pro runner, like I, it, it stressed me out by the end and I probably could have used a sports psychologist. That's, I think the only regret I have about my running career is that I did not try to use a sports psychologist. And I think that that would have made a huge difference for me because at the end I was just putting so much pressure on myself and so much pressure on running and doing it right. And like gags was do as well as he can, like, you know, smile. And that is how I ran best when I was happy with it. But for some reason, I just couldn't get that at the end. Um, so I don't want to say it's healthier than when it was in 2011 and 2012 when I was really enjoying it, but it is healthier in that now, like I don't rely on it to bring me happiness. It does bring me happiness, but it's not the only way that I'm getting it. And that's kind of a a really great thing for me now. I don't know how many elite runners are listening to this podcast, but what advice would you give those athletes who are putting a lot of pressure on themselves, especially during a time right now where there are no races and the future is uncertain as far as whether or not they can actually make a career out of this. Yeah. I mean, I think the advice that I would try to give is find out why you're putting so much pressure on it. And yeah, it might be like just that you're a perfectionist and you want to be good or yeah, this is how you make money. This is your living. So that's why, but then find out why you're putting so much pressure on it and try and find ways to lessen that pressure and really kind of make yourself have a healthy relationship with running. It's, it is, I mean, for professional runners right now, it is the only thing that you've got. Like that's how you make your living. And I'm sure most runners have hobbies and read and things like that. And that's great. But when your job's not going well, it is hard to be happy in real life. So find a way to, I guess, lessen that pressure and ease, ease it. And I think if you can, and it's not easy to necessarily afford it or anything like that. But if you can find someone who you can talk to about that, whether it's a sports psychologist or just a psychologist, I think that it's really kind of, I said it earlier, but that is my biggest regret that I never talked to someone about how to lessen that pressure. I mean, gags kind of knew that, but he probably didn't even know it as much as it was affecting me. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great takeaway, not just for, pro runners, but anyone who's listening to this, who's putting that pressure on themselves, whether it's to (laughs) run a personal best to qualify for Boston or just they tie up too much of their self-worth in their own running results. I think it's, I think it's helpful to have someone to talk to uh, who can help diffuse some of that pressure that we, we all put on ourselves. Oh, completely. And now I'm, I'm very fortunate that I feel very good about running, but in a year, who the heck knows how I'm going to feel about it, you know? So it's just, it's, it's finding that balance to make it make you feel good about yourself, not like be the only, but not be the only way you can feel good about yourself. Last question before we wrap up. It is a very 
weird time in general right now, <laughs> certainly for running because the sport as we know it is on pause. But all that aside, what is exciting you about running right now? I'm excited for it to come back. And I think that the way it is right now, like we've got, we've got a chance to change it, you know? maybe now that you can't race, maybe some people are going to see that I can go out. I I do want to go out and race a bunch and get excited about it again. But like, once it comes back, it's, it's going to feel nice. Like, and I think it is going to be a slow comeback. I think it's going to be tentative and I think it should be, especially as we learn more about everything going on in the world. But I think just like, I'm excited to be able to, to be excited again and to, to have a bunch of races that I'm looking forward to. Like, I can't wait for, pretty much every women's hurdle race next year at the Olympics, like the 400 hurdles, the 110 and the steeplechase there. Like those athletes are just incredible right now. And I'm, I'm hoping that they're taking this opportunity to just get even more excited and more amped up to, you know, I want to see some more world records next year. And I think it's just going to be a really fun time and hopefully we don't have to talk about shoes as much either (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's been that's been one of the one saving graces these past few weeks i haven't heard a damn thing about carbon fiber (laughs) plates since uh late february at this point so maybe i mean i want our situations to change but maybe we can keep that going for the foreseeable future (laughs) well this was an awesome conversation i really enjoyed it Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast and all that you're doing with Lope Magazine. Everyone out there who is listening to this, definitely check it out. I believe it's lopemagazine.com. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me. I've been an avid reader and listener, so looking forward to cringing at my own voice. Right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. My thanks to both Soar Running and The Feed for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Right now, Soar is giving all listeners of the Morning Shakeout podcast the chance to win a spring kit bundle comprised of your choice of any top, bottom, and accessory from Soar's range of products. All you have to do is head over to soarrunning.com slash themorningshakeout. That's S-O-A-R running.com slash themorningshakeout and enter the prize draw. That is it. The winner will be selected at random and entries close at midnight on Sunday, May 3rd. Also, SOAR is offering free global shipping to Morning Shakeout listeners throughout the month of April. When you check out at SOARrunning.com, enter the code SHAKEOUT, that's all caps, in the promotion box, and they won't charge you for shipping no matter where you live in the world. The feed is a one-stop shop for athletes to fuel their training, stay healthy, and recover quicker. Their online store offers a selection of over 200 different sports nutrition products, supplements, and recovery devices. Whether you are looking to stock up on healthy snacks or improve your training or recovery, visit thefeed.com slash morningshakeout to save 12% off your next order with The Feed. That's thefeed.com slash morningshakeout. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at The Morning Shakeout. John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. 
Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>